Welcome to Regenerative Farmers of America podcast. And welcome. I am so excited. I am going to let Angela introduce herself because this is the woman of many, many talents. And I am excited for her to lead us through all the amazing things that she is bringing to permaculture, regenerative farming, and homesteading. Angela, take it away. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks. Glad to ha have you here. So uh, my name is Angela. Uh, I am the farmer and founder of Axe and Root Homestead, which is a six acre historic farm from 1775 in central New Jersey. Um, my piece of land is a little unique in that at one point in time it had cattle. Um, it's an old working farm, but then it sat stagnant for a really long time. And when we moved into the property, I had done a little bit of homesteading on three quarters of an acre. But I really wanted to bring what I learned and combine that with bringing this farm back to life. So I started getting really into permaculture and I actually didn't know that's what it was called. I thought it was just like holistic sort of homesteading, right? Everybody gets a job and everything's working together. And that's kind of the best way I could think of to describe it. Come to find out there's this massive movement and I, there's so much to learn. And I totally drank the Kool-Aid and I just dove head first. And so my farm is only six acres, like I said, but we do a lot to restore our land and give back to the soil more than what we take. And we have Clydesdales, sheep, ducks and geese and guineas. I've got livestock guardian dogs, cats, and then honeybees. And then all of that at, at, at the center of all of those beings, including myself, is our garden and our orchard and our growing spaces because really they all contribute to food and we can talk about how they do that. I love that you you clearly have so much going on in such a small space and I love that you have kind of taken on gardening and poultry are of course not always the best of friends right so why don't you take us down that road of how you sustain this just giant food forest garden and allow animals to be part of that without being the destroyers of that. <laughs> Sure. So here's the thing. If we look at these massive farms and sort of industrial agriculture situations, people are trying to grow crops and fertilize those crops with manure, but they don't always have their own cattle or animals or livestock to source that manure from. So to me, it seems kind of backwards. I mean, I get it, but they're having to haul in manure or compost from somewhere else miles away. And you know what I'm thinking? That kind of seems like an unnecessary step. How come we can't integrate them together? Now, before you start sending me hate mail about the cows are eating your corn, give me a second to explain. Absolutely, you wouldn't want to turn your heads of cattle loose on a growing cornfield in progress. But if they were on that field last year, as they were grazing, they would be leaving all of their manure behind. And if we look at Mother Nature and her patterns and how she works, we don't just need rotting plants to return nutrients to the soil. There is a cycle between plants and animals. And not just when animals die and degrade, we're talking about their manure, what they eat from the soil they uptake into their bodies, and they automatically shed some of that into their feces, which returns some of those nutrients and microbes to the soil. And so if we sort of put the two things together and we say, okay, I had cow here last year, I could do corn here this year. And you know, the following year, the cattle is gonna graze where the corn was, and now the corn goes back to where the cattle were. All of a sudden we've connected this, this network, this system, and our plants are healthier for it. Our soil is healthier for it. Really it's good for the earth and the animals are gonna be getting 
less exposure to parasites. They're going to be um, eating more nutrient dense food. And so there's ways absolutely to incorporate animals in sort of a sequential order that helps to not completely annihilate your crops or your garden. Now, chickens, you had mentioned, I'm good. Don't send me hate mail. I just don't like chickens. They're just not my thing. And I appreciate the chicken and they are fabulous permaculture contributors. It's just not my cup of tea. So I use ducks instead. And the reason I use ducks is because one, they have webbed feet. And so those webbed feet don't scratch up your soil as much as chicken claws. Now I have guineas and I've witnessed firsthand how they really do scratch around in order to access a good dust bath, right? And so that can be detrimental, especially for seedlings. Well, ducks don't have that problem. They can walk on it, but that's why I don't turn ducks into my growing spaces until I have relatively well-established plants. The other things that the ducks do is they go after snails and slugs and those pill bugs or roly polies. They go after a whole host of insects. And sure, they will sample a few tasty salad leaves and that sort of thing. So if there's something especially fragile, I'll block them off. But really, when my plants are established, and if there is enough of a pest population to introduce the ducks, they're not going to be interested in the crops. And I think this is where the breakdown really happens, is people think, oh my gosh, there's too many bugs. Now I've got to bring in my chickens or my ducks but they've also practiced some other sort of pest control like a spray or removing them by hand and placing them in jars of soapy water. And then they're going, well, my chickens and ducks are going after my plants. Well, yeah, that's because the food's gone, right? So we kind of have to get comfortable with the uncomfortable for a little bit as mother nature and this whole ecosystem balance starts to settle in. There's gonna be some growing pains, but they have a job and that's their job, right? These birds, they're going in, they're, they're removing that for you. You don't wanna do that for them. And how long, yeah, and how long, so you say the the pests are going crazy, is there like certain times of year that you're like the ducks go in for a day or a week or kind of what's your tangible execution? Yeah, so really I'm gonna pay attention to a couple of different things. Like I mentioned before, one, I want the plants to be well-established. So in the spring, I'm not gonna turn them loose into my garden or my other permaculture food forest spaces until the plants are like pretty well-established seedlings. So we're talking late spring. Um, so that would be the first time I would give them access. And uh, I have a flock of 40 ducks. They're not all gonna go in at the same time. Everybody gets a rotation. But the other thing I wanna pay attention to is what they're eating. Because as soon as they do run out of food, as soon as those slugs and snails are gone, it's time to pull them out because otherwise they will go after the plants. So you do need to realize that even though they are performing the task or the role of pest control, you are still the facilitator. And left to their own devices, if everything is well eaten, as we hope it should be, they're going to start going after other things. So you want to pull them out. So I kind of introduce my birds. If I start seeing a pest problem, um, I do it like every couple of weeks. They're not in there every day. But then absolutely, late autumn, so we're approaching that pretty quickly here, after the majority of my fall crops are even died back, because I live in New Jersey, so we have heavy frosts, we have sort of a, a dormant season they go in and they have free reign. And they're gonna go in there, they're gonna fertilize the soil with their droppings as they go, they're gonna clean up any scraps that I missed. And that is another sort of um, way that I amend my soil in the wintertime. That totally makes sense. And I'm sure that provides like a great abundance in spring. Everything is coming up very 
you know, poultry poop has to sit for a while. It gives that a overwintering period. That's such a good idea. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it is really helpful. And I think that it's important to realize that, yes, we want these helpers, but we have to make sure that we are just facilitating their access appropriately. Um, otherwise, they're, they're naturally meant to forage. You know, if you're hoping that your animals are going to be in the coop and then free range and forage in your garden spaces, well, you're going to run into some issues with crops because that's not a balance. It has to be a balance. I love that. So start taking us up the scale. So moving into sheep and Clydesdales. I feel like you just have this like, you know, abundant space where there's so many things growing. So how do you then move up to the larger animals and incorporate that same system of time and finesse with such, you know, animals that are always into things? And sure. <laughs> that's what so they do. I absolutely have pastures, right? Because I need my animals to be able to have the ability to graze. So they're not always in my, my growing spaces. When I moved to the property, there was a very large garden that was already established. And I had visions of moving it elsewhere to what used to be a cow pasture in the 1950s, that turned out to be a floodplain. So I ended up keeping the garden where it was at. And then I really, when I got you know, really into food forests and that facet of permaculture, I started just growing outside the garden. So I have sort of the garden proper, but then I have these other growing spaces heavily throughout the property. I mean, I'm talking about visions of food forests that you walk through on little dirt pathways and you have these edible trees towering overhead. It's very underwhelming right now, though, because I just planted it. So it's not going to it doesn't look like that yet. <laughs> but that's the intention. But I can do that because I have livestock guardian dogs. And so at night, I'm not worried about deer coming through or other critters. And um, they keep everything off the property, in addition to protecting all of the stock. But prior to that, you know, let's talk about the Clydesdales first. Um, I don't plow in the way that you would think of with dragging some sort of tilling mechanism behind them where they're ripping up the soil. Okay. What I do instead is I have a drag and they get hooked up to that and they help me spread out manure in the pastures. And so while I absolutely in a pasture rotation circuit have the ducks and the sheep going in to graze those spaces after the horses and specifically the flock is helping to break apart that manure as they graze and look for insects. Sometimes it doesn't all get evenly distributed. And we want that, that sweep, that full pass of that spreader to go through. So I turn my drag teeth up and that's their first job. That's how they contribute is um, they just evenly spread, you know, like a top dressing of their manure evenly throughout the fields. But then if I am taking compost from their stalls and um, I've composted this manure for a time being, or come fall, I start building up where I'm going to put my pumpkin patch next year because you never want to grow pumpkins in the same spot, right? You want it to be as far apart as possible from the previous location to avoid squash bugs. I will start building up heavy amounts of manure and this will decompose over the winter time. So come spring, it's already decomposed. I have a fresh plot of land and the horses help me to drag that around, spread that out into the new growing spaces and prep that soil. So I absolutely use them for heavy work and pulling, but their manure is quintessential to the health of my plants as well. The sheep have a very interesting job. The primary job of the sheep is to keep my horses healthy. And if I don't have healthy horses, I can't get access to that manure for compost. I can't get access to pulling power. But what many people don't realize is that 
by nature, there are different species of farm animals that work together when they graze. And what ends up happening is when you allow this multi-species rotational grazing system through any pasture space, they're gonna automatically ingest the parasites that infect the other species because they eat different portions of the grass and the parasite larva hatches at different times. So after the horses have left, the sheep are coming through. And when the sheep are coming through eating a different portion of that blade, they're gonna accidentally ingest that parasite. It's not gonna affect them because that's a horse parasite. So they keep my horses healthy. And then, like I mentioned before, we have the ducks and the geese come through. Now, the other thing we get from the sheep is composted bedding that I use in my manure and compost piles. And then also, obviously, we get wool, which is what most people think of. But they're excellent lawnmowers. And so in an area that I wanted to use as a sunflower field, it was very grassy, uh, sort of lush vegetation. That is not a goat's forte. Goats like fibrous, woody growth and weeds. Sheep <laughs> like grass. Yeah. So you turn those sheep loose. They're going to clear that out for me without having to till up and turn up the soil. And now I've got a flower field. So everybody contributes. Everybody has a special role. I love that. And we talked earlier about something I feel like is so important. So we say sheep and people see the visions of New Zealand and the 700 sheep running through the mountains yeah. on a small scale. I think you have three sheep right now. And five. Five sheep. Yep. On that acreage, tell me a little bit about how you plan their life cycles, how you keep them healthy, like how you calculated for a footprint of your size with such complexity of garden and available space. How do you do those calculations? So if you wanted to get very meticulous about it, there's something called a stock uh, density calculator. Stock density simply is sort of an industry term for how many heads of an animal type we have in a certain space. But it's not just about the relationship between quantity of sheep or cattle or whatever animal with relationship to acreage. It's also about the forage that you're growing, um, how often that forage is available, what type it is, and how quickly does it grow back, and whether or not you have a dormant season. And all of these factors come into play to try to give you an idea of what is appropriate, how many animals can you realistically and comfortably and really ideally for the animal's health have on a farm space or a pasture without overgrazing. Um, also, do you want to feed hay? Do you, are they on a supplemental grain? That sort of thing. Now, for me, it was a little bit of a trial and error, like I said, because I didn't know that this permaculture thing was a science. I just thought I was being holistic. So we have two Clydesdales. We're on six acres. I buy the city because the zoning permits and that sort of thing, zoning laws is absolutely something to can take, take into consideration. I could have another horse, but they are so big and so massive. I would be feeding a lot of hay. And I'd rather, being the permaculture-minded farmer that I am, have them on grass as much as possible. So right now we have the two Clydesdales. The sheep, you can comfortably keep, I think around four, maybe even five sheep, on a one acre pasture, if you're breaking it up into sections that they can rotate through. And that is pivotal to their health because they tend to be a little, more, a little bit more prone to worms. So you wanna make sure that if you are keeping them in a smaller space, you're breaking it up. So they're constantly getting access to new forage. Now for me being on the six acres, I could absolutely have more sheep, but I'm not looking to run a sheep farm. I just wanna keep enough that I can keep my horses healthy. So five seems to be a good number. If we had one or two more, so be it. 
the flock of ducks, I lost control. Quite honestly. <laughs> it's chicken math, but in duck form, right? <laughs> well, yeah. And I mean, just one year, they just kind of went crazy with the breeding and I intended to sell some and then my kids fell in love with them and it just didn't happen. Right. Um, but we sell the eggs at our farm stand. We give them to the food pantry and they kind of split off into their own little flat factions. You know, they're one big flock, but they're clicky. They have their favorite friends and they kind of go out and do their little areas all individually. So they, they do a good job of covering the property. And we have eight geese. Um, the geese are very interesting because they act as sort of watchdogs for the ducks. And while they are not physically capable of defending themselves against a fox or a coyote, they absolutely can sound their alarm. And their presence alone is enough to determine many hawks. So they kind of act as a little bit of a buffer between the flock and predators. They also give eggs and, and we have a lot of customers that prefer those eggs at the farm stand over the duck eggs. So those are seasonal. We could use their down feathers. But what I really like the geese for is when we do our rotational grazing, after the horses have gone through and then the sheep, we bring in the flock and the ducks are busy scouring for insects and breaking apart manure piles. Like I said before, I have sheep and they're grass eaters, but geese love weeds and I don't have goats. So they're gonna come through and they're gonna eat all the remaining forage that's left behind from the horses and the sheep. They cover that job. And then we have the guineas. Myself and my dogs got really bad limes last year. I was very hesitant about guineas because everybody said the noise is awful. I have found them quite honestly to be an absolute joy. I love them. They are no more loud than my geese or ducks truly. And we got lavenders. So maybe they just tend to have a more quiet disposition but their job is solely ticks and they eat other things too. But I have not seen a tick since, you know, a few weeks after they got here. And that has been huge, not just for my health, but for all of my stock. So they also go through the garden. They also help with some of the, the insects and that sort of thing in there. And then we have the bees, right? Because bees contribute to pollination. And yeah, we get honey and we get wax, but I'm more interested in the immediate effect, their job, their, their, their actions that they are contributing to the growing spaces. And that, that would definitely be pollination. So that's why I have what I have. <laughs> Everything here is picked out intentionally. Nothing is just homed for the sake of it, you know? I love it. Uh, I'm going to take you back to one specific topic that hits home. Fellow Lyme patient to another Lyme patient, apparently. Uh, guineas are what brought me to saying I'm not doing this disease any more than I have to, right? Lyme disease is yeah. awful. And I think so many people in this community are affected either short-term or long-term from it. Yeah. But so many people have the aversion to guineas for the noise, the the I, ours are not friendly. I, we've had them for years and they could care less if we're alive. How do you handle that? They are so wild and feral and they don't obey fences and they fly in a system like permaculture. It's got a finesse that things are certain places. The guineas tend to be a wild card for me that they really just do what they want to do. <laughs> so it's very interesting. Yes. People hate them. They're, you either love them or hate them. Yeah. And of course, when I shared uh, on my social media profile on Instagram that we were getting guineas, there was a whole host of ideas on how to keep them in the yard. I, I started with the intention though, that I was gonna make a guinea tractor. 
Just like you see the, the chicken tractor, I wanted to ensure that the guineas had a full pass of the entire farm before I turned them loose. Because I wanted every tick picked up off of this property if possible. So as they're young, very little, because I got them in, in the warmer months, they were able to spend the night times outside. They would pick up on the motion of the guinea tractor and they would get very excited. And I initially thought, well, I'm just gonna move this once a day. But uh, they are voracious eaters and I quickly learned they needed to be moved about two to three times or more per day. And we covered that first pass of the property quickly. Now, by this time, they were a little bit bigger and I thought, okay, let's let a few out to roam and let's keep a few behind because I had heard that if you do that, those ones that are all rogue and out are gonna come back and they did. And so I thought, okay, this is going great. We're just gonna do a few. Well, then that only lasted like a couple of weeks because I felt bad for the ones that didn't get to go out for recess. So I decided to leave them all, let them all go. And they would come back at night on their own. And I know that's not normal for most or all, but they did. And I was like, this is, this is great. Okay, I don't have to move the guinea tractor as much. And they're going to be in here at night. I can close them in when I'm out closing up any, everybody else anyways. So that's where we kind of are now. You know, they, they go out, they do their thing. I don't, I don't even lock them in at night because now they like to roost in the trees. And I, of course, absolutely, we've lost a couple because they have flown too far away. But I think now that they're older, they know that this is a safe space. They know the livestock guardian dogs are here. And I have a lot of animals that create a lot of waste. There's a lot of stuff to pick through. I mean, as disgusting as that is, they know, they just know that this is their home. I don't know, quite honestly, it might change because guineas, they seem a little unhinged. It could very well change. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I love that. That's actually very similar to the experience we've had is just you establish home base, right? Like this is your safe yeah. zone. This is where you're okay. We've had ours for five years and they come back to the same spot every night. Um, yeah. So I cross our fingers. Hopefully we stay in the same ballpark that they're well-behaved. <laughs> How old are your goodies? How long have you had them? About five years. We, we have some of our original batch um, mm -hmm. and we only lose them at the edge of winter, like right where everybody, the raccoons, the possums are out, they'll go up the trees, but that's yeah. the only loss I've had because they come, like you said, back to that safe zone where they know <laughs> nothing's after that's them. So, well, good. that's so interesting. Good for you for keeping them <laughs> intact and on your space for that long. Well, Lyme disease, no joke, right? Like we're gonna <laughs> fight it the hard way. <laughs> yeah, seriously. So. Um, but do you find that they, because they can go everywhere and fences are of nothing to them, right? Like put an eight foot fence up, they're gonna laugh at you. They're yeah. okay on the garden space. They don't have the destruction level that the chickens would have. Not yet. They don't. They've been in there quite a bit and it makes me nervous because this is sort of my first season with them in the garden where I've got a lot of lettuce and things right now, but we're doing okay. It seems Good. to be going fine. I haven't had any casualties really. I think I had one kind of bent over kale plant, but it's not dead. It's just like leaning. Right. I'll take it. That's fine. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I mean, they will occasionally, in the beginning when they started getting their free range time, they didn't know the boundaries of the property. They had to learn that. But I think they very quickly did. Yeah, I love yeah. that. I, I was about to say, I feel like we could talk guineas for quite a while, but I'll take us back up. Um, I feel like we've implicitly talked about it, but we haven't expressly said it, rotational grazing, of course, where we're talking about movement from pasture to pasture. What mm -hmm. systems are you utilizing for the different species and what are kind of your recommendations for other people? Are you a netting person? Are you a polywire person? What's your what's your drug of choice on fencing? <laughs> sure. um, so in the beginning, when we moved to the farm, we had no fencing. 
and I had the idea in mind that I wanted to do rotational grazing. Um, so what we did is all of our pastures first off are electronet or uh, electro polywire. I'm, I'm mixing those up, but it's some sort of electric rope. <laughs> okay, is it like boxes, like a net, or is it like individual no, strands? No, it's just that's on the on the perimeter. It's just uh, several strands. Okay, you know, about a foot apart of heavy duty. It's polybraid electro wires. What okay. it is hooked up to a solar charger, and so that's what we had first is the horses, and that was enough to keep them in. And the ducks did free ranging initially. So then, when I decided, okay, we're going to bring in a smaller stock, we needed to have um, some sort of a tighter enclosure on our fences for the sheep. And so that is where I brought in netting, just Premier One portable netting with a solar charger. Um, worked great until I got a sheep with horns. <laughs> so- Oh, the lesson um, we all learn the hard way. <laughs> yeah. My Romney sheep were wonderful. They respected it. It was great. And we, they would go all over the yard and I would just set them up in the backyard for the day and it was perfect. And then Lindsay, the Shetland came in and decided to throw that all off and couldn't keep her horns away from the fence for the life of her, like moth to a flame. So what we ended up doing is um, the, the galvanized deer fencing all around the perimeters. And then in between, I divide that up when needed with the electro in between. So now at least Lindsay can't get out, right? Because she's not tearing down the whole fence. She's got the deer fencing. Now if she decides to tangle her horns, she's at least enclosed in the pasture between two spaces. But this practice of dividing up the pastures changes. And so you can see in my upcoming book, The Sustainable Homestead, and on my Instagram account, you can see how I divide it up. Now, it changes by season. Through the wintertime, because we have a dormant season, I want my animals to have access to as much forage as they can. So I do not restrict them. It's not good for them, especially the horses. I've had colic, so they get full turnout. So come spring after winter, it looks like I am the worst regenerative farmer ever because everything is smashed. It looks like I have no food for anybody. And it looks like I have no idea what I'm doing. When in fact, that is the time to start setting up your rotational grazing plan. So what I do before forage even starts to come up is I start dividing my pastures, how I'm gonna do it. And you'll see in the book I have coming out different layouts and plans. But the thing that we have to realize is in spring, you wanna divide that up a lot. We're talking like four in a half acre space. Reason being that forage grows so fast. If you can get them on one section, move them the next day. I mean, you're gonna replenish your forage in no time. Now, as forage starts to grow in a little more slowly, rather than supplement with hay, I prefer to take out some of those pasture lines and create bigger grazing spaces. That way it becomes a little bit more of a slower rotation, but they're still getting the access and the movement, which is really important for animals. And then as we kind of go through the fall season, that's when I start taking out many of the ropes and then we start utilizing other spaces like the backyard fencing perimeters and that's where a lot of that portable fencing comes into play we're using the margins we're using the boundaries right where they might not normally have access just to try to keep them moving and keep fresh forage in their systems for as long as possible 
I love that. I, I think the underwhelming thing of rotational grazing is movement, right? Like we all can yeah. say, move them seven times a day, move them once a month, but it, it all comes back to the movement and the growth, right? Yeah, yeah <laughs> so. absolutely. I mean, if you can, and it all depends on what you're growing and where your geographical location is and how many animals you have. But once you get in that pattern in the spring, and it's hard to keep up with, you're moving that fence constantly if you only have one, which is why it's great to get a couple and keep them in place so you can just move the animals rather than the fences all the time. Yeah. Um, it's a lot of work in the beginning in the spring, but it's also kind of a good problem to have, right? This abundance of forage and we're trying to keep up with it and make sure everything stays healthy. And uh, it's pretty cool to see when it actually starts to fall into a groove. Yeah. The, the first year is carving the paths, figuring it out and finding yep. out what floods, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Or figuring out like, you know, it would be a lot better to spend a lot of money on five water troughs, you know, massive stock tanks than lugging the same bucket or stock tank from place to place. You know, so there's a lot of little learning curves like that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but once you get it, it is it gets to be pretty hands off aside from just turning out the animals. Yeah. And, and I love your little tip in there by two sets of fencing, the, the one that they're in and the one they're going to like, don't, <laughs> you will be chasing yeah. your animals across the field, not from personal experience <laughs> that, <laughs> you know, so two yeah, sets of fencing. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, last topic I want to dive into is food forests because they're amazing, okay. right? So tree coverage, food sustainability for the animals. You tell us a little bit about how you started the food forest, how they work with the animals. And uh, you just have such a finesse, I feel like, about how you put yours in. It wasn't just my animal needs shade here. You're doing key line and watershed and you're taking so many things into account when you set it up. Thanks. So um, we talked about the garden initially, right? So my first brush with the food forest was um, where I just had grown some pumpkins. And so remember I said, I. I pile up manure and I create these sort of new pumpkin patches every year to get those patches as far away from the previous crop as possible. And so then you're left with this great soil. And so one year I had created a food forest well away from the garden or a pumpkin patch well away from the garden amongst some trees. And they actually did really well there. You know, it was surprising because the pumpkins, they had a little bit of shade, but they grew up and they trellised themselves on the trees. And I thought that's really cool. Maybe next year I'll do that again in a different spot. So then again, I'm left with this, this uh, plot of great soil from the previous pumpkin patch that's now in a forested area. And I thought, well, I'm just going to grow some corn and some other things in there and see how that does. It did fine. So I started, sort of had these little pockets where I was experimenting with food forest ideas. And then I have this part of my land that I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go all out. You know, it's at the base of a hillside. We're prone to flooding. I want to create a little water catchment pond. And I'm going to build a food forest around that. And that's the one I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation where I want it to be pathways and edible shrubs and trees. And, you know, you have the overstory. I don't know if the previous owners that lived here had any permaculture knowledge or interest, but there's this area of my property where this hillside is, where I put in this pond that is home to black locust, which is a nitrogen fixing overstory tree. And then there's maples, which we tap for sap. And then there's a couple crab apples and there's an old pear. And I thought, hey, we've already got two tiers of the food forest going. We have the overstory trees and we have that mid story. All I need to do is add shrubs 
and vines and ground covers. And so I thought, I'm going to do it. And so I started creating this pathway very slowly out of some rocks because we have a lot of shale and slate. And I started laying down these, these sort of flagstone style paths. And I researched some edible shrubs other than your standard blueberries, which I have. But interesting things like Siberian pea shrub that are really good for the soil and um, uh, sea berries. Sea berries? Sea berries, I think, which are new to me. And um, I just started researching things that I hadn't really known about before and creating beds for perennial food items. I get really sick of planting every spring. I don't want to do it, but I have to do it because I like homegrown food. But if I can have a tree collard come back every year, hey, I'll take it. If I can do perennial broccoli, perennial kales. And so this whole food forest is now perennials and it's going to fill in. It's going to be great when it does. Right now, it does not look good, but it someday it's going to look great, knock on wood. And I've got a cold hardy lime over there. I've got blackberries and raspberries, figs, you know, all kinds of things. And it's really sort of taking on this shape of a food forest. And it, it's not necessarily about going on Pinterest and getting overwhelmed by someone's established food forest and being like, oh my God, I'm never going to make this. I'm just going to stick with my raised bed. No, it's about looking at your site and saying, okay, do I already have an overstory tree somewhere? Do I already have a mid-story tree somewhere? Could I plant something around that that would grow? Um, could I capture water over here, even if it's in a rain barrel? And then just adding one more plant and then one after that and thinking about how do I want to walk between these two so I can access. And it doesn't have to be overwhelming. It can be fun and it can be creative. And it's just about as long as you keep accessibility, physical accessibility to harvesting and walking through in mind, trying to capture some sort of energy between sun, water, whatever, making sure you have a windbreak if you need it, you're good. You can do it. I love it. And I think something that is uh, probably something you're thinking, but probably not as expressed is a lot of those foods that you picked are also really great for poultry, right? So we looked at like offsetting chicken, duck, turkey feed costs. You picked a lot yep. of ones that are high protein foods that are also forages for the animals. So food forests are not only human food forests, they're animal food forests too. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great point. And especially when it comes to perennials, um, a lot of people just think of that as like trees, right? But if you have perennial shrubs beyond just blackberries and raspberries, if you can do blueberries, currants, um, whatever in your area, you're going to invite a lot more native um, birds, animals, insects that are going to contribute to this little sort of micro ecosystem that you're creating. We have more praying mantis egg cases at this farm than I've ever seen anywhere in my entire life. I cannot like prune something without finding praying mantis. That's like having an army of insect control at my disposal. And all I did was plant perennials to foster their egg cases, right? We have swallows, which are going through now and eating flies and they're eating mosquitoes. And so that's great. There's been an owl, which we never had before. There's a bald eagle that's been flying around. I mean, all of a sudden these things are starting to show up here that we did not have here before. And they are taking on their own role in our little ecosystem. Um, and so we're also feeding them beyond just feeding ourselves and our animals, which is really cool. I love that. And 
let's go to the, the flip side of the coin of that is that wildlife does what it wants and seeds and things end up in places that they aren't necessarily uh, the best. So kind of how do you embrace the the nature and the rewilding that a little bit takes place? Is there like, do you have just pasture fields and you try to keep them crisp or kind of what's your system for managing that? Well, in the pasture fields, we have grass that we started with initially and we just, um, we did a lot of mowing of the weeds that we had when we got here. Cause we are talking, it was like wild. It was uninhabited for a long time. So we had a lot of thorny things that weren't really good for the animals. We, you know, a lot of poisonous things we needed to get out. So for a while there, it was really grooming with just the natural grasses that were coming in. And then we started cover cropping um, last winter and filling in those gaps of where the weeds wanted to grow in and come back and where that grass was. And we also ordered um, seeds that would do things for the soil. Like I had some forage turnips so it could feed the animals, but that turnip, it, you know, expands compacted soils. So you're having things like that come in, right? So that's how we've taken over the rewilding of the weeds in the pastures. But when it comes to self-seeding plants, we have a lot of white mulberry that started showing up around here. And I have this garden proper space with raised beds and three massive, white mulberries have moved in and I'm really torn. Do I dig them up or do I leave them? And I'm leaning towards leaving them. I would really like to take up their root balls and transplant them elsewhere on the farm. I just don't know if they would thrive. So I need to research that a little bit and how large of a diameter around the root ball I need to take without destroying my garden. Um, but I think rather than just think of things as like, oh, cut it down and take it away, it's more like modification and tweaking and editing, if you will, right? Like, why? Well, yeah, I could use this, but I'm going to move it over here. The hardest thing for me is just the grass. A lot of grass is natural at this property and being a flooded area, we have very moist soil. Grass grows great, which is good for the animals. It's very hard to keep things weeded. And so that's where the sheep come in, really is turning them loose in my growing spaces. And I have a picture where this brand new garden space that I had implemented last year quickly became overgrown. I could not keep up with it. And the sheep is going through eating between the broccoli and the cauliflower. It's untouched. The that's amazing. You would think like, destruction, right? Like, but that's no. amazing. <laughs> There's so much to be said for ideal forage. And I just don't think we give animals enough credit. Like absolutely, if I had to choose between my favorite food and like a secondary, you know, I'm gonna go for the favorite first. So. Nobody's because, choosing vegetables voluntarily, not even the right. sheep. <laughs> right. the, yeah, so would I turn my horses loose in there? No, because they can't realistically walk in between those spaces without crushing things, but they have no interest in eating brassicas. It's not good for them. They know that. Um, so it really just becomes this understanding of, okay, if I'm going to build a new space, and I don't want to maintain it myself. How am I going to realistically do this and allow my sheep or whoever to come in and do this with me without destroying everything? So if you have the luxury of starting from scratch, that's absolutely one of the most pivotal things to keep in mind is, are the ducks coming through? Well, how are they going to get there? And how are you going to have them go in between the plants without crushing things? Can you create little pathways for them? You know, it's just little questions like that the design forward, right? Like yeah. <laughs> a lot of us jump into the chaos halfway through, but if you have the ability to permaculture design and kind of step back. <laughs> yes. yes, that is a luxury for sure. <laughs> so uh, words of wisdom, if somebody loves this movement, they have not farmed before, what's your words of wisdom to somebody getting started in this space? 
I think it's just first, it's a couple things. Number one, you can do it. Um, I think it is second nature. I think we've learned industrial farming methods and somehow we like to think that that has become second nature, but that's not. It is second nature to us to plant something and watch it grow with the assistance of mother nature. So you can do this. In fact, it's easier. You just have to let mother nature take the reins and be more in the, um, the seat of the, of, the, of the person observing, you know, you, and be willing to accept that feedback and accept that chaos and understand there's a little bit of hands-off that comes into play. Um, but then the other thing I think to keep in mind is this can be a very overwhelming lifestyle if you let it. At some point, things fall into place. If you start bringing in all the animals that have jobs and the plants that have jobs and they start working together, really the chaos just plummets and everything starts to take on a balance like a true ecosystem. And it's amazing when that happens. But until that happens, you have to get comfortable with the uncomfortable and that is okay. It's gonna be a lot of work, um, but that's how we learn, right? Yeah. Um, and it's just baby steps. That's all it really is. Anybody can do this. It's just baby steps. I, I think that's so important, right? Like the chaos is the middle where, you know, we're yeah. not in balance yet. We're getting there, but to be okay with that middle ground, that is not easy. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Definitely. And then the other thing is, I think if you're interested in permaculture, truly is getting into the mindset of what purpose does this serve? And do I already have this purpose covered? Because if you do, and you start bringing in something and saying, well, yeah, this can eat the grass. Oh yeah, well now I can have this animal, they eat grass. Oh, I really wanna have that at my farm. I'll just say that it eats, it's eating the grass. Guess what? You're not gonna have any grass left. <laughs> so you have to keep things in balance. If you already have a major grass eater, bring in something else that's gonna do something else for you. Yes, I have horses that eat grass and I have sheep that eat grass, different parts of the grass. One eats weedy forage, one really just prefers a lot of grass. Yeah. So think about what they offer. And it's gotta be typically, if you can with permaculture, more than one function. We call that stacked functions. You know, I mentioned all of the roles the sheep play and all that the horses do. You wanna have things that give you different functions, different jobs. That's how we really get the ecosystem going. I love that. And obviously you are a wealth of knowledge on all things permaculture, regenerative homestead. Tell me where people can find more info because you are into so many amazing spaces. You have so many resources. Where can people go learn more? Thank you. So uh, my, my farm name, my homestead name is Axe and Root Homestead. You can find me online at axeandroothomestead.com. I post most regularly on Instagram. Just Axe and Root Homestead is the handle. Same for YouTube. Um, as for books, I have a cookbook on garden to table seasonal eating called The Harvest Table that I co-wrote. And then I have a family series called The Little Homesteader Series, which really um, inspires kids and families to get into sort of living seasonally, whether you're in the country or in a high-rise apartment. Um, but the one that's closest to my heart is The Sustainable Homestead, which is my newest book. And that's pretty much covers everything that I know and have learned so far. And that is coming out in March and available for pre-order on Amazon now. Awesome, I love it. Obviously we will be pre-ordering and picking it up. I encourage everybody else to do so. Thank you, Angie, I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.